0: I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to CounterCurrents Radio. We are back with another of our Saturday live streams sponsored by you. The people who make this possible are our listeners and actually a select small minority among our listeners who donate. And if you would like to donate, if you would like to help us out, if you'd like to keep our signal strong and keep us on the air, please go to entropystream.live forward countercurrents without a hyphen. It's across the bottom of the screen. And you can use a credit card to leave a donation of any amount, $3 and up. Also, please include your questions and comments. Uh, We have three very distinguished guests on today to talk about the Charlottesville verdict and the larger implications of the trial. And if you have questions about this, we would be delighted to take them. And we will take other questions as well near the end of this stream. So, uh, b- by all means, please inc- uh, please include your questions, especially uh, directed towards Jason. Uh, he will be in our f- with us in the first hour. Uh, also, if you would like to toss in your DLive tokens, your diamonds, lemons, ninja guineas, and so forth, those will help as well. We can cash those in and apply them to our fundraiser. Already this year, we've received more than thousand dollars worth of these DLive tokens, so that is helpful. We're trying to raise two hundred thousand dollars y- this year, and we've gotten more than uh, one two hundredth of the way to our goal simply by you cleaning out your change your d live token change and tossing it our way so thank you very much for that so i would like to welcome first and foremost uh jason kessler uh the kessler of signs v kessler jason welcome back
1: hey good to be with you
0: and i would also like to invite back sam dixon Uh, who is an attorney. He's well known to you all. Uh, He's been on this uh, live stream many times. He's a regular speaker at American Renaissance. Sam, welcome back.
2: It's nice to be
0: back. And finally, I want to invite Glenn Allen on the show. Glenn, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, uh, Craig. Appreciate it.
0: Glenn Allen is an attorney as well. And he is, I've known him for years. He's an extremely impressive attorney. And he has an organization that is dedicated to defending freedom of expression. And I hope that we can get that, a link to that in the chat at DLive and Odyssey uh, so people can follow that. And I will also put that up on the screen as well. Uh, so, uh, Glenn, welcome. Uh, it's, it, this is the first time you've been on one of our streams, I believe, and it's good to have you.
3: Yeah, no, I very much appreciate it, Greg. For okay,
0: talking. Well, um, the Charlottesville verdict is in. Uh, and I, I think, though, that by focusing too much on the verdict, we might have the danger of losing sight of something else, which is namely the fact that this suit was an injustice before it we went to trial, before there was a verdict. This suit was a civil suit. Uh, designed basically to penalize people who stood up for white interests, for Southern heritage, who were exercising their constitutional rights to speak their minds and to peacefully assemble in public. Uh, This suit was openly brought together by a group of left-wing activists who want to suppress basically white identity politics, and only white identity politics. All the other identi- identity politics is fine with them. Uh, they want to to, to use uh, law as a weapon of warfare. It's a, a lawfare suit. And this suit, long before there was a verdict one way or another, even if the verdict was a complete acquittal, a complete victory, in quotes, for our guys, it was still an attack that they had to undergo for years. Jason, I I just want to ask you how many years of your life have been consumed with this suit? How many hours can you even count them up and how many dollars, how much opportunity cost have you, have you borne because of the suit already before it even went to the, to the jury room for decision?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been uh, four years since the event, you know, over four years and have, Been spent on this litigation. And, um, you know, the the amount of money, I haven't totaled it up, but, you know, it's certainly tens of thousands to uh, potentially uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, spent, you know, um, on this thing. Certainly over hundreds of thousands when you talk about uh, the different uh, parties involved who've all, um, you know, had to pay for attorneys if they could afford them uh and the, the hours i mean it's it's hard to separate the um the the fretting over the fallout from the event generally uh with this lawsuit but certainly it's it's been the number one thing consuming my mind uh over these years
0: yeah absolutely uh well i guess the the main reason they did this though is they want to uh, they want to deter you so Are you going to be deterred by this? Are you going to cease uh, standing up for white civil
1: rights? Absolutely not. I mean, I I know that some of the uh, defendants, and everybody's got their own way of dealing with it, have used language like, this is crippling. And I I just, I'm not a big fan of whining. I think it gives propaganda to the other side. And if the other side thinks that they're going to stop me, boy, they are in for a rude awakening because... All that they've done is just make me stronger because um, when I have an enemy against me that's trying to hold me down and tell me I can't do something, it uh, motivates me greatly to, to do that very thing, to shut them up. And that's what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing.
0: Wonderful. Well, Jason, uh, if people uh, want to help you, there are a couple of places they can go. Uh, I'm, I have a thing scrolling across the screen from an earlier uh, Podcast you gave. Um, can can they still send things to uh, the Give send, Go account for United Absolutely. Right?
1: The GiveSendGo Go is givesinggo.com uh, forward slash UTR. Uh, it, if you want um, the mailing address for the attorney or you want to send Bitcoin, uh, all of that can be found at jasonkessler.us forward slash um, donate. And so uh thankfully all of that money goes directly to my attorney so you don't have to worry about these um these uh people from the other side getting a hold of it uh none of it goes to me it goes to the attorney
0: Okay that that's good to know uh absolutely uh so uh, I want to just give an overview of uh what I understand this uh the suit was about and Jason Glenn, Sam, if I'm making any mistakes, of course, just just jump in, okay? Uh, It was a civil suit. This was not a criminal suit. None of you, I understand, were actually charged with any crimes by the state. Uh, There were nine plaintiffs in the end. Some of these people were injured in the car crash uh, that James Fields was involved in. Others were simply around, uh, and they seemed to me quite transparently just grifters, whiners, malingerers, uh, pretend victims uh, who were uh, recruited into this case uh, basically uh, to uh, harass you, to harass you for exercising your civil rights. Uh, The defendants included uh, people, the following people, Jason Kessler, Matt Parrott, Matt Heimbach, traditional worker party, Nathan D'Amigo with Identity Europa, Chris Cantwell, Jeff Scoop and the National Socialist Movement, Michael Hill and Michael Tubbs from the League of the South, uh, a group called Vanguard America, James Fields of Car Crash fame. Am I forgetting anyone?
1: Uh, There's lots of people. There's people who shouldn't uh, have been in it. Like there's two Ku Klux Klan groups who, uh, to my knowledge, were the ones who were um, at a July protest in Charlottesville. Uh, and they were just thrown in there. Um, uh, Moonbase Holdings is a corporation that I guess Andrew Anglin runs. Uh, there's a number of people. I, I can't even uh, necessarily recall them all off the top of my head.
0: Yeah. Elliot Klein, Robert Asmador, Ray. Those are a couple other people I, I recall. Sam, did you add somebody?
2: Yeah, I think it's important to remember that Bill Regnery uh, was initially a uh, party,
1: and there are lessons to be learned from that, which we can discuss later.
0: Yeah, Bill Regnery, Mike
3: Painovich uh, was a, a
1: party. Well, Ron, um, uh, Regnery was not in the science yeah. case. That was the the state state case.
2: Okay. What,
3: Sam, wasn't that a different case? I, I understood. Yeah, it, that. Must,
2: it must have been. I was confused. But there, there's a lesson that we'll talk about later. Yeah.
3: Yeah. We,
0: we, we, we will definitely get back to that. Um, Richard Spencer, Richard Spencer was also there representing himself. Um, so as I understand it, there were six counts against the defendants. Uh, the first two counts were basically conspiracy charges and they resulted in a hung jury. They, the jury could not decide on these things. One of the conspiracy charges was connected with this anti KKK act. Um, But since there was no decision on it, I think we can just set those aside. Um, The fifth and the sixth counts were against James Fields specifically. Um, I think number five was assault and battery with his car, and number six was infliction of emotional distress, basically, uh, the people in the crowd uh, who uh, were around and saw this. Uh, And he was awarded by my back-of-the-envelope reckoning, he was found guilty, and they levied more than $13 million in compensatory and punitive damages to him. Now, I don't know of anybody who has a car insurance suit. He was represented by his insurance company. And I don't know anybody whose insurance company will go as high as $13.4 million in damages. So it seems very dubious to me that uh, the vast majority of this money, if any of it, will be paid because already people I think have probably been making claims against his insurance. So maybe the attorneys can weigh in on
1: this, but I don't think the insurance company is going to have to pay anything because it was an intentional uh, act. You know, the insurance companies pay for accidents. Uh, You know, they're Ah. they're not going to pay for a homicide. Do you, do the attorneys have an opinion on that?
3: Well, that's generally true. I I had thought that might be a court appointed lawyer. I, I haven't been following it that closely, but wasn't the lawyer for James Fields court-appointed or
1: no? He, he was uh, from the insurance company. I think the reason that the insurance company wanted to have an attorney there is just so, just in case he wouldn't argue that he had done it on accident, which would have put the insurance company on the hook. You know, but, uh,
2: also they have an obligation to defend him. Um, there, there's an important point here that we'll talk later about more at length. I hope later, and that is the importance of insurance um and the the the, the in, in regards to bill Regner is another thing but the uh yeah also there, there won't be any money for these um, these plaintiffs out of him because surely heather Heyer's family is first in line to scoop up all that money
0: oh yeah i would think so um so yeah okay so the the let's just set aside the first two and this and the the fifth and sixth counts then because they don't really apply uh to Jason or anybody that we know. Uh uh and so uh, count 3 was basically a civil conspiracy charge as I understand it. It was basically they were ch- people were charged with conspiring to go and get in fights. Uh it wasn't a, raci- a specifically racial uh thing as I understand it. Um and uh, there were a number of people who were found against uh uh, there were again, there were nine plaintiffs, and they uh uh so they found against uh, Nathan D'Amigo, Matt Heimbach, Matt Parrott, Michael Hill, Michael Tubbs, and this, I believe, Jeff Scoop fellow. Um, none of whom were people who took part in the torchlight march the day before Unite the Right. Uh, and uh, it's very interesting though, the compensatory damages that the jury awarded to the nine plaintiffs consisted of $0 for signs of Signs v. Kessler. And this uh, fellow named Seth wispelway this, uh, is he actually a man of the cloth or just pretends? He's just this very strange Antifa activist who gives off a kind of uh, sex pest vibe is, is the best way I can describe him. They gave them $0 to make them whole. And the other seven, were given one dollar each in compensatory damages, which I thought was fascinating. And then there were five hundred thousand dollars in punitive damages levied against each of the defendants, uh, which which seems uh, very interesting. Uh, and I want to talk about whether or not that will fly under various uh, statutes, both in Virginia and also I believe the Supreme Court uh, made it had a decision about. Uh, com- um, compensatory and punitive damages. And then the fourth charge was basically, it was basically a thought crime charge, as I understand it. It was a a, a racial, religious, or ethnic harassment and violence, uh, charge. Basically, uh, if you have bad thoughts and, and commit a crime, uh, you will be punished for your bad thoughts as well as the crime. And there were two people who were specifically plaintiffs in this, as I understand, um, Natalie Romero and Devin Willis, who are both blacktivist types, who claimed that, uh, well, I guess one of them claimed that people called him a a nigger and made ape sounds at him or something like that. Um, And I understand that they found against, uh, that the jury found uh, um, against Jason Kessler, Richard Spencer, Elliot Klein, uh, this guy Asmador, who goes by Asmador, and Chris Cantwell, and that these two plaintiffs were given $250,000 each in compensatory damages um, because it's very, very serious business to have names uh, thrown at you. Uh, and uh, $200,000 in punitive damages were levied against uh, each of the defendants. So th- that's a lot of money. Um, and I guess the question is: um, First of all, uh, will will this actually fly? Uh, are are are, the, are you going to, for instance, Jason? I, I know you can't speak for other people in this, but do you plan to appeal the, these decisions?
1: Yeah, part of it is already uh, in the works. I mean, the, the attorneys are all going to be trying to uh, bring those. Um, those dollar amounts down, uh, particularly the, uh, the punitive damages. But in terms of count four, um, uh, that is August 11th only. Uh, so it's only dealing with the, uh, torch protest and it's, um, it's a non-conspiracy thing. So it's supposed to be like what you individually did, uh, to one of the plaintiffs. And, uh, none of the, there's no evidence to support that I, uh, did anything to these people. And we put in something called the Rule 50 motion, which addressed this. Uh, that's the, the, uh, and so we're going to bring these um, issues back up again later. But uh, essentially, I mean, uh, neither of the plaintiffs said that they, they saw me. Uh, I didn't call either of them an, uh, a bad name. Uh, I didn't touch them. I mean, at least with somebody like Asmador, at least they could say, well, he deployed uh, pepper spray. So maybe uh, that oversprayed onto them or whatever. They can't say that about me. And in, in fact, the evidence that was presented in court was a meeting before the event where uh, I told people that they had to be nonviolent at this protest. And we called the police and let them know. Uh, it just, you know, I, I've started to become very uh, skeptical. About whether the courts will ever uphold our rights uh, and and any kind of uh, fair due process, but even this seems like—I mean, come on—you've you got to have at least some evidentiary basis for something like this.
0: Is there any evidence at all that anyone said mean things to Natalie
1: Romero and Devin Willis? Any well, evidence at all? The, it wouldn't matter if there was because I didn't direct them to do that. And it's not a conspiracy case. So, you know, they couldn't allege that, but there were allegations that were made in the courtroom. I mean, they were really, really bizarre. Like uh, there was, uh, as you said, um, uh, Devin Willis had claimed that people were making monkey noises at him. So what that ended up being was there was points where the protesters were chanting, or just kind of pumping themselves up. Hoo, 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 hoo. Like a normal thing you would hear at like a sporting event or something. And so we heard the most bizarre interpretations of that. So uh, apparently that is what Will- Willis said, said with the monkey noises was who, hoo, hoo. And then um, – and it was directed at him, even though people were doing it the entire March, like they were just telepathically, you know, uh, predicting that he was going to be there. Uh, and and besides that, um, the expert witness, Peter Seamey, said that it wasn't monkey noises and it wasn't who, who, who. It was Roof, 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 as in they were chanting the name of mass murderer Dylan Roof. So we heard all kinds of bizarre explanations for uh, for this, like – guttural chant
0: that's 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 very very interesting so uh there's there's something on 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 tape then but uh it's it's open to interpretation obviously i mean a lot a lot of these uh, anti these charges of racism basically consist of people of color pretending to be offended and then the rest of us pretending to care about it uh, and then uh, decisions are made that basically push society one small ratchet towards the abyss. Uh, and then this just keeps being repeated over and over again. Uh, most of these victims are not, not genuinely offended by anything. Most of them have no pain and suffering. None of them were ever brought to the Americas on slave ships. None of them had to pick cotton. Uh, most of them are privileged, uh, whiny, uh, weak people. And, uh, they, they, they live in a society where, uh, basically, uh, the worst, the worst motives of human beings, if you're a, a colored person or a minority of some sort of privileged minority are given free vent. Uh, y- if you uh, are motivated by greed, if you're motivated by sloth, if you're motivated by envy, uh, just any, any base motive at all, uh and you, you think you can gain some advantage over a, a white person uh, by, by claiming that you're offended, well, they'll do it because they're always rewarded. Uh, oh. And this is at the same time as we have this idea that the system is systematically stacked against them, when in fact the system is systematically stacked for them, which is why they're constantly going around pretending to be aggrieved. Being an aggrieved victim is coin of the realm here. Uh, and I, I I guess there are just no standards uh, the, of, of of evidence that really come into play uh, here. Uh, did these people uh, testify as to the level of pain and suffering, uh, the, the ones who weren't actually hurt in the car crash, did they testify as to their state of mind, their pain and suffering? Because one of the charges, um, the sixth one, uh, the second one against Fields was, Uh, about emotional distress.
1: Yeah, I mean, all of them claimed that they were suffering PTSD in like the 99th percentile, meaning that they scored uh, higher than all but 1% of everyone with PTSD. And we're talking also about the people who got the $0 amounts like uh, Elizabeth Sines and uh, Seth Wispelway, who uh, didn't have any physical injuries uh, and the majority of their damages seem to have come from just witnessing the protest taking place. and, and Yeah. Being so
0: Elizabeth Sines, who was live streaming the torch march and tittering and giggling, uh, we now learn uh, years after the fact was suffering the torments of the damned uh, and, and was at you know, level one PTSD because of this traumatic experience. Uh, uh, it's, it's absurd. It, it's, it's quite quite silly. Uh, uh, The the top percentile of PTSD, I guess, puts you up there with say, people who have survived wars, right? People who have been uh, assaulted, tied up, and pistol whipped by home invaders. People who have been raped. uh, And Seth Whispelway. Seth Whispelway, who uh, was uh, profoundly traumatized by people thinking bad thoughts. He's, He's right up there with them.
3: Greg, uh, yeah. uh, this is Glenn. Could I ask yeah. a question of Jason? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've, I've wondered if it came out in discovery or at trial, whether the plaintiffs were approached by the plaintiff's counsel or the other way around. Um,
1: yeah, that came out um, in interviews that um – Roberta Kaplan herself was doing, and I, I actually have. Uh, well, I don't know if I have that segment, but I have some of that interview on my bit channel. But basically, as she explains it, you know, there's a um, there's a left wing um, uh, uh, judicial journalist named Dahlia Lithwick who writes for Slate and covers the Supreme Court and so forth. And uh, at the time, she was living in Charlottesville. And uh, she went to a synagogue where uh, a lot of the politically powerful people in Charlottesville, like the, the former mayor, Mike Signer, went to. And so I guess she was connected with um, uh, the Jewish community in New York. Like, I mean, not just random Jews, but very powerful ones uh, who are connected to the Democrat Party. And so she knew um, Roberta Kaplan. And she invited Roberta Kaplan to come to Charlottesville and, uh, and basically confer with a, a hand-selected uh, bevy of potential uh, plaintiffs that Dahlia had selected for her. And so that's how it went down.
0: So these people were recruited. These people weren't found in hospitals. Uh, Where they were languishing because of their trauma and victimization. These people were recruited. Uh, There were a lot of people who were hurt uh, in the the car crash. Uh, Why were not all the other people who were hurt in the car crash represented as well?
1: Well, uh, there's some people who were uh, injured in the uh, car crash. You were parties in different lawsuits. Like there was one that was filed by a gang named uh, Bill Burke in Ohio, which was very strange because none of the events happened in Ohio. But I guess a number of the various defendants had connections to Ohio. And so he... He was able to get some money out of David Duke and uh, the Traditionalist Workers Party. And and basically uh, he, he wrecked MPI because that MPI didn't even bother to fight the lawsuit. Um, so so that was one. And then there's uh, two other individuals who filed a, a state case. And that's uh, the one that Regnery was uh, named in, although Regnery beat that and uh, was able to get out of the lawsuit. Uh, But I think that, um, you know, I mean, they had some people in the signs case who were hit by the car and who had uh, genuine injuries. Uh, But I think that they also wanted to get a selection of people that would check off various boxes in terms of um, uh, diversity characteristics, uh, because, you know, the vast majority of people on either side at that event were white. But they th- that doesn't tell the kind of narrative that uh, Kaplan was looking to tell. So they had to sort of search out for the people who could uh, check the right boxes. And then they wanted like a plaintiff who would represent like what happened on August 11th and someone who would represent the, the car crash. And uh, Seth Wispaway was supposed to represent, you know, uh, the, the people who were. Uh, blocking the entrance to the rally itself and and so they wanted to try and spread the the liability across the entire event
0: oh that's that's very interesting so they were they were trying to get a sort of a diversity bouquet of, uh, of, of, of victims basically uh, Some that, that's fascinating
3: Sa- Sam uh, and I are old enough to remember when it was questionable as a matter of legal ethics to maintain or solicit people for purposes of, to the advantage of the lawyer. Uh, I mean,
1: supposedly that's not even lawful, right?
3: Well, as I said, Sam and I are getting up there, but I, I sure think it's questionable. But um, I don't know, Sam, what do you think? What, didn't they call it baritry or, or maintenance? Or yeah, um,
2: that, that's true. And, and it's still on the books, but it's become like the, the blue laws. It's really not enforced. And it was never enforced against groups like the NAACP. In law school, we studied that. They they made a point that, well, you know, it's okay for, uh, for organizations for racial reform like the NAACP. It's okay for them to seek out plaintiffs, or, and it's okay uh, for other people to pay their their attorneys' fees. You're not supposed to pay attorneys' fees to somebody, uh, but in this case, we can be fortunate because. Uh, I mean, Jason will attest that you know, people like me gave, gave what we could to help the cause. But theoretically, you're not supposed to do that. But they relax it in the case of um, organizations like uh, and causes like this. One.
0: Well, just uh, imagine if the, what the SPLC would be doing if they couldn't go out and uh, uh, solicit for victims uh, in, in their harassment uh, lawsuits.
2: That's a question I'd like to ask, Jason. Uh, it's my understanding that that Kaplan raised over $20 million and that she also got a lot of money from the Soros uh, Foundation. And there was some kind of a tricky thing where she circled part of this out as donations or something to, you know, in, in some sort of a tax-wise way, questionable way. Did you know anything about that?
1: Uh, I haven't heard anything about any Soros funding. She was being funded uh, by... Uh, Reed Hoffman, who is a um, Silicon Valley billionaire who founded or co-founded at least the website LinkedIn. And so he has uh, been associated with a number of uh, left-wing disinformation campaigns. Um, he was uh, funding a, a campaign that was uh, roundly condemned against the um, uh, Judge Roy Moore in Alabama. Um, that was cited as being disinformation. Uh, and he, he, he funds a lot of these, uh, startup projects and so forth. And he is, um, a former associate of, um, of prolific, uh, pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. So, uh, after Jeffrey Epstein, uh, got his first sex traffic, sex trafficking of underage minors charges, uh, Reed Hoffman basically, um, went into overdrive trying to rehab Epstein's image. So he invited Epstein uh, along with um, uh, Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Zuckerberg, and a number of other uh, Silicon Valley Titans to meet with Epstein uh, for a private dinner and was trying to rehab uh, Epstein at MIT, various things like that. Uh, They were also funded by uh, the ADL, of course,
2: Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing appears certain, and that is, uh, in terms of what Kaplan's got out of the case, if she's gotten twenty million dollars for handling one case, uh, she's done rather well financially.
1: Yeah, I, my understanding is that uh, she has an office in the Empire State Building, and uh, since this case started, she's gone from having. A, basically a normal size office to an entire floor of the building. And uh, I mean, you just look at the the lopsided um, financial situation with this case. I mean, they uh, raised, uh, I've heard about $25 million and uh, they got a judgment of about $25 million. So they might as well have just given that money directly to the plaintiffs. But, and that, those judgments are, are and we could talk about this, are gonna go way down. So it's it's definitely gonna be less than twenty-five. So they uh spent twenty-five to get less than twenty-five. It, it's uh totally if they, ridiculous. if they spent
3: it, but um god knows where that money
1: went, right? Well, thirty thousand is dollars. Some of that money is being funneled to um, shady Democrat operations like Fusion GPS. The uh, they they gave about six hundred thousand dollars to Fusion GPS, um, their law firm uh, Bean LLC. Uh, Fusion GPS was the um, one of the, the the founding operations behind Russia Gate and the the Trump uh, Piss dossier and all that. So these people they, they're knee deep in in swampy D.C. operations.
0: Okay, so um, let, let's talk about the, the absurd thing uh, about this case. Not only did they, they raise $25 million to get about $25 million in judgments that will be reduced, uh, but they also sued people who don't have $25 million anyway. Uh, they sued people who don't have that amount of money anyway for a conspiracy. And the, uh, the, the fact remains, though, that there actually was a conspiracy uh, to cause violence at Unite the Right. And that conspiracy involved people in the city of government of Charlottesville. It involved people in the governor's office. They were all coordinating. To, to ensure that that event descended into violence so they could call it off. Heather Heyer wouldn't be dead in all likelihood if the city of Charlottesville, the Charlottesville police, the government, uh, the state government, uh, r- right up to the president, or not the president, the, uh, the governor, uh, w- were not conspiring to shut this rally down, this lawful, permitted rally where people were exercising their constitutional rights. Now, unlike Jason Kessler, the city of Charlottesville and the state of Virginia have very deep pockets indeed. Uh, and if we're uh, supposed to look at these uh, these people, uh, these victims, these alleged victims, and some of them were real victims, they actually were you know, thrown through the air by a, a car crash, uh, if these people's injuries and suffering really mattered to Roberta Kaplan and her crew, why didn't they go after the real conspirators who also have deep pockets? And, and I will go so far as to say that uh, if they were just concerned about getting these people compensation, then it doesn't even matter who the real conspirators are, uh, right? You go for the ones that have the deep pockets. and And in this case— uh... you could actually make a very plausible conspiracy charge you could take the heat report uh, that the city commissioned an independent report and use that to make an argument that these people suffered because the the city of charlottesville and the state of virginia why didn't they do that if they were really concerned about the alleged victims that's what they should have done but obviously they weren't concerned about the victims at all they were concerned about hurting you And of course, they were concerned about helping themselves, both politically and obviously financially. These people are really cleaned up on this.
1: Yeah, this was about stifling, free expression, uh, compensating of the victims. Uh, I mean, Roberta Kaplan herself thinks that's a joke. She would laugh when uh, talking about uh, whether she thought that the defendants could actually pay these judgments. She would literally laugh, which seems... Uh, very disrespectful to the people she's supposed to be representing. Um, But even now we see that that's the case. I mean, I was reading in uh, one of the Daily Mail articles that apparently, uh, you know, Of course, James Fields is in prison. He's not going to have any money. Uh, Chris Cantwell is in prison, not going to have any money. Matt Heimbach apparently was working as a fry cook at McDonald's and lost his job during the trial after somebody said that they recognized him on TV. So he's out of a job. And uh, I'm... To my knowledge, I'm not aware of a single one of these defendants. I haven't done an audit of their finances, but I'm not aware of any of them that can uh, satisfy this judgment uh, or, or even come close to that whatsoever. Um, it, you know, keep in mind that I have a lawsuit against the Charlottesville government and the Virginia State Police um, and, and and the city manager and chief of police of Charlottesville government, and we believe. That we uh, preserved our ability to continue this lawsuit because of the fact that we were able to um, uh, lock the jury on the, the two signature counts, which were the, the supposed racially motivated violent conspiracy. There was no finding that there was a racially motivated violent conspiracy. And uh, the one state conspiracy charge was uh, basically valued at a dollar. So uh, I mean the, the the damages that I s- supposedly did on August 12th uh w- were about a dollar per head.
0: So let's just talk about uh the the damages. Uh because for well first of all the the entire suit and I I followed this. I I actually read almost all the transcripts. I I have to admit that I skipped over a lot of stuff. Uh, but I, 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 I think I read about 85% of the transcripts. Uh, and it was very clear. Uh, I, I skipped over the boring stuff and got to the juicy stuff. So um, it was very clear that they didn't have any real basis for making a conspiracy charge. And they tried to obscure this with a lot of hand-waving uh, and a lot of uh, excruciating... Uh, excruciatingly detailed character assassination uh, against the various people involved. They spent a great deal of time looking at racially inflammatory jokes and and insensitive comments uh, made by a lot of people, yourself not included. And that's all well and good, uh, but it's not against the law. It's not against the law to be a jerk. Uh, but a lot of these people were being put on trial basically for being jerks. And when you, you got those, uh, results back, uh, on the, uh, the, the third charge, the civil conspiracy, well, the, the thing connected with the, um, the, the conspiracy basically to, to go and fight is how I understand it. Uh, you know they, they they awarded compensatory damages to nine people totaling $7. Now compensatory damages are basically to make people whole. And if you say that Seth, Seth Wispelway gets $0 to make him whole, you're basically saying you don't believe he has any claim whatsoever. He's got no claim whatsoever. Then why add $500,000 in punitive damages for each of the defendants. Well, I think that is just a testimony to the success of the, the trial strategy, which was not to show a conspiracy, but was simply to impeach these people as bad people because they had bad views and said bad words. Uh, but that that should have never been allowed to fly to begin with. Uh, the, the judge seemed to have get, given enormous latitude uh, for these people to basically just engage in, in character assassination and point and sputter about naughty words and uh, forbidden thoughts that aren't illegal.
1: Yeah. I mean, basically uh, the, the only thing that they had to say about me was that I said that if the Antifa punched you, you could defend yourself. I mean, that's not really a, uh, a revelation and it doesn't matter whether you hope that they'll punch you so that you can defend yourself. Uh, If you are totally nonviolent and uh, an Antifa shows up to initiate violence with you, they don't have the right to slug you because you're protesting and saying things they don't like. So the whole thing, the whole concept of this was just offensive. And then the the entirety of their uh, racial animus against me basically uh, came down to in their closing arguments that I said that I believed white men founded West Western civilization and should have uh, a majority ownership of its future. I, I mean, I, I don't think that that's particularly controversial, but there you have it. Jason, may
2: I ask a question? As a question, you you were actually were you actually present in the courtroom for much of the trial?
1: No, but I, I was participating over Zoom. There were COVID protocols that were to limit the number of people in attendance.
2: Well, I, I, I'm curious. Uh, about, first of all, the judge's charges. I, I've heard wild accounts that he said that mere, mere presence could constitute belonging to a conspiracy. I, I know that in criminal law, presence can be a one factor, but it, it can't be conclusive. But I've also heard he said that you can be a member of the conspiracy and not know you're a member, not choose to be a member. Uh, you can be a conspirator and not have any reason to anticipate uh, that there'll be a crime committed, and, and none of that exonerates you. Yeah, what, what can you tell us about the charges you, you what, what happened
1: there yeah you're you're talking about the jury instructions and the jury instructions were just so awful they uh i, I mean it, they were so long and laborious and um uh, Byzantine that i couldn't really keep up with it to be honest and and i don't think the jurors could either but it just sounded like it was one excuse after another for why the uh jury should Uh, find in favor of the plaintiffs, no matter what the evidence said. It really uh, was a lot of, you know, yeah, you you don't need to know the other conspirators. You don't have to have agreed to a specific act. Um, Keep in mind that even uh, if there's no direct evidence, uh, circumstantial evidence is just as important uh, because uh, often conspiracies are clandestine and the evidence isn't there. But I mean, maybe that was the case in the 1970s or something, but this is a case where these people uh, had all of our telephones, our computers, our social media accounts. It was the closest to mind reading you could possibly get. They they got every communication that we had over four years, and then they had uh, – You know, an entire department, a battalion of researchers pouring through every single thing we said. So there was no clandestine element to it at all. Uh, And then on top of that, they had uh, this thing with the expert witnesses, uh, which was sort of like to make it so you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. The expert witnesses came in and said that we use coded language. So um, in some cases, you might see somebody say something. that uh, they could say, look, th- that person uh, wants to fight. They- they're part of the conspiracy. But then, if they say, uh, "I don't want to fight," you know, and self-defense is a last resort, then they'll have the the expert witness come in and say that's coded language. They know they know what that really means when they hear it. Offensive violence. So did, it, did these
2: expert witnesses claim that they had ever personally interviewed the or, or had, had dealings with the. Uh- actual defendants, where they could speak about them individually, as opposed to their group assessment of this non-existent movement they created, into which they gave a title as, of the white supremacy movement? Did they, were, were, were the defendants ever among the people they studied for the their, their report?
1: Absolutely not. And this was just a, a really uh, phony report. It was um, not peer-reviewed. And these are people who do ethnographic research, which is not you know the most scientifically sound research out there, and what they normally do is, you know, in uh, bed with the uh, people that they're they're researching and and um, you know uh, question them and and. All this other stuff um, over a long period of time. Here, they had a very selected sample, which was handpicked for them by the plaintiffs. They chose which podcasts these people were going to listen to. They chose which Discord post uh, they wanted them to read, and it, it really just had a, a prefabricated um, um, decision. So it was the, – the, the, their um, their methodological basis of this thing was totally flawed in my opinion. And uh, we, I, I'd done a lot of research into these people and I'd seen where uh, they uh, talked about, for instance, um, not taking uh, what people uh, say in terms of violence literally. It's often figurative. Where people are uh, defining who is in the in group and the out group, it's often fantasy based, and people who actually go on to cre- uh, cause violence or terrorist attacks are um, are usually not the ones who are making a lot of big talk online they they uh analogize this to hunters and howlers. So howlers are people who talk a lot and don't do anything. And then hunters are the real people you have to worry about who are not online bragging to their buddies. They're, you know, stockpiling weapons and bombs and things like that. This guy knows that and uh he was he, he, you know, he was presenting a very different picture, let's say. I'd like to, I'd like to
2: ask you I, I, I don't want to interfere with Craig, but I'll, I'm going to ask you in a minute a question I want you to be thinking about. And that is, what what could people do to minimize their exposure to this kind of, of suit or strengthen their position? And I don't mean any, any criticism on you by that, because I think you, that nobody could have anticipated that this would happen. But the next, the, before I get to that question, uh, what what i'm assuming that what we call daubert motions were filed to bar this testimony but what, what happened with the efforts to bar the so-called expert testimony
1: well uh they were limited uh we we tried to do um motions in limine and uh we we got at least uh to the point where they couldn't opine on whether or not there was a conspiracy uh but there was only so much we could do i mean the, it seems like the 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 plaintiffs did have the right to have these people there. It really would have helped if we'd had the budget to provide um, uh, our own expert witnesses. I mean, just from what I'd seen, and I researched this heavily, these people were not um, representing the consensus within their field. I think the consensus within their field... Uh, was drawn uh, during the war on terror when uh, Islamic radicals were under the microscope. And I think there is a perception that the war on terror was a failure, that this um, extremist research field did a a piss poor job of identifying who actually was going to be violent and um, and had done more to Hurt civil liberties concerns of uh, of Muslims generally uh, than uh, just about anything in, a, in a, that would be considered uh, American. Uh, certainly not in keeping with the Constitution. And these people, uh, in my view, are just redoing the same thing with uh, with white identity politics. And it's 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 much scarier because uh, th- there are a lot of people at the time who would stand up for Muslims, you know, and say, hey, you know, you're picking on outsiders, politically um, weak people. But here, you know, I mean, there, there's just no sympathy for for people who have uh, white interest concerns. They're just... Uh,
2: right. well, what, uh, what, 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 is there anything we can do in our day-to-day lives that would be would help us get us at least some traction in this kind of, of, of situation? Can you make any suggestions based yeah. on
1: that? I mean, I think you, you can't joke. You can't even joke about violence. I think you really want to tone down the, um, the, the over-the-top racial hatred. When you see violence and race hatred that's just like uh, – just in really bad taste, you need to stay away from that. And if you're a moderator of a chat room, you need to remove that stuff because it's going to uh, increase liability for you. Uh, I was, uh, you know, at the time uh, thinking, uh, you know, our free speech, our civil liberties are under attack. I want to allow all of the speech uh, that's that's legal. But now I see that, you know, I mean, it's it's sort of a, a different a different ball game. there. You can't really necessarily mix free speech absolutism and white identity politics because the, uh, it's going to put a big target on your back. And you have to realize that I- anything that you say uh, online, whether that's uh, in a, a private uh, DM, um, whether it's a text message, even to your mother, uh, you have to think, is this something that could be read back to me uh, in a courtroom? And and you need to think long and hard about it. You, you don't want to be typing a bunch of really dumb things late at night, maybe after you've had a few drinks. Uh, be be careful, be serious, because these are uh, attack vectors for you.
0: That's very important. Uh, I want to uh, get to a question at Entropy. Uh, Gaddius Maximus writes in with 40 U.S. dollars. Thank you. Uh, he asked, gentlemen, if you could give the outcome a grade based on the standard A through F scale for both plaintiffs and defendants as a whole, what would you give them? So, Jason, since your time is coming to an end, uh, how would you... Grade what's happened so far, both uh, the performance of the defendants and their legal teams and the performance of the plaintiffs?
1: Well, uh, you know, the plaintiffs really underperformed. I would say D, but uh, that's grading on a scale where they had enormous advantage in terms of how many attorneys they had, how much money they have. So a D for an operation like that is still. Uh, a pretty uh, formidable um, threat. Uh, But I would say that they had a very poor showing in court, uh, very underwhelming. And I don't think the judge was impressed. I don't think the jury was impressed. As far as the defendants, uh, I'd say that overall, uh, their their result was probably a B minus, I would say. Uh, things could have been much worse much worse I mean the 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 judgment amounts were not that uh high the two signature uh claims of the racially motivated conspiracy count one and count two failure to prevent said uh, conspiracy uh ended up um, in a deadlock um, and, and then I mean for some of these people they're gonna get they could potentially be in a very uh, favorable position. You look at a group, let's say, like um, League of the South, they who had a uh, million-dollar judgment against them, as all of the organizations did. But this was a punitive judgment. So uh Virginia law already caps punitive judgments at $350,000. So right off the bat, uh that's coming down by $650,000. I well, mean, let
0: me let me ask you this. Um and let me ask Glenn this too. Um when you cap punitive judgments at $350,000, uh does that mean that the total punitive judgments for this entire case are capped at $350,000? or just the punitive judgments that are levied against each uh, individual or group?
3: Well, thank you for asking me, Greg, because I don't know the answer. I've read that uh, statute many times, but I can tell you, if you give it the plain language interpretation, it says in any action, the total of punitive damages against all defendants shall be capped at 350,000. The one thing that's missing from that is all plaintiffs, but. I think a plain language reading of that, and I haven't found any case law, and someone needs to research it, and and, and I'd be glad to do that, and, and others would, that, that explain that. But to answer your question, on a plain reading, I think it's 350000 as to all defendants and all plaintiffs. So that would raise the question, how is that allocated? Assuming if you have, you know, four counts, and you have 20 or 17 defendants, and you have nine plaintiffs, and the cap is 350000 how does that get allocated? And that is a very interesting question. If my interpretation is right,
1: <clears throat> yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't know that, but I, uh, Glenn is right. I'm looking at the statute right now, and it says the total amount awarded for punitive damages against all defendants. So it, that is a good question. How that would be allocated? I well, thought it was, it first was You Yeah, know,
0: if it were for each, they would say each. Each and every defendant is three hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. But if they say all, that that seems to be all of them. Uh and and so and does that apply to um does the three hundred and fifty thousand cap apply to each charge or does it apply to all the charges where they where there were uh punitive damages? Uh so would it be three hundred and fifty thousand for count? Three and three hundred fifty thousand for count four, and three hundred fifty thousand for the uh, five and six, which were uh, basically o- only against uh, the the fields, um, the the fields car, uh, <laughs> James Fields and his car. So,
3: Great, that's a, another. That's a good question, but I would tell you, I would suggest that it says in an action, and as Sam knows, an action means the whole lawsuit. So it okay. that is in a lawsuit all the defendants, all punitive damages against all defendants will be capped. So okay. that doesn't include all claims. It doesn't say the claims, as you say. The, the one thing I, one would wish it had said it, it was all plaintiffs and all defendants in an action. But it seems to me that's the implication. There, there's, there's
1: another element to this, which is a Supreme Court case called State Farm Mutual Automobile Insurance versus Campbell which uh, instituted a uh, ratio for uh, punitive to compensatory damages. And it says that, you know, the, the, uh, it should be considered excessive for it to be uh, more than uh, a four to one split, like four times uh, punitive uh, damages is compensatory and the outer limit, the absolute outer limit should be nine to one. So that would seem to infer, you know, from a, A straight reading of the case law uh, that you know one dollar in compensatory damages should result in at maximum nine dollars in punitive uh, damages. Do do I have that right?
3: Well, you know, there was a time when I was reading every case on punitive damages. I I was involved in some major punitive damages litigation in Maryland, but that was before this case. But I I can tell you that I had always understood the courts tried to. put some play in the joints. So there wasn't a fixed 10 to one or nine to one ratio. It was, they they factored many things. They factored the defendant's reprehensibility. They factored in the defendant's ability to pay. And then they factored in the ratio between actual impunity damages. But they strongly suggested that certain amounts would defend their constitutional sensibilities. So I haven't read that case. And, uh, well, so I, I, I think you. the
0: uh, I think a ratio of five hundred thousand to one probably <laughs> would, would raise some eyebrows, uh, I, I, though, right? I,
3: what, what one would think? I mean, if, if if they're suggesting that you know ten to one or twenty to one is getting a little bit uh, you know suspicious, you know fifty million to one or whatever the number are, I don't know how many zeros. I, I would hope would really offend them, but but then you know, are, are they going to say you know this was just egregious, reprehensible conduct? If I could make one other point, um, again when when I studied this, the ratio there has to be a ratio between the reprehensibility of the defendant's conduct and the and the um, community of damages. But um, I mean what what was reprehensible about the defendant's conduct, for example, in count three, when the plaintiffs only got one dollar in actual damages? The, the only thing reprehensible is they didn't like the message, right? And then you-
0: exactly, exactly. And it just it indicates to me that the strategy, of blackening everybody's reputation uh, w- was was reflected in that, uh, but they still didn't think that uh, there was a real conspiracy and that most of these people suffered any real harm, yeah. which I think is fascinating. The the poor jurors, uh, how many weeks were they subjected to all of this? Uh, uh, I I almost read this uh, um, this this verdict as as basically giving the finger to, to both sides in, in the case. It's like, okay, Seth Wispelway We, we give you $0, uh, to make you whole. Uh, and yeah, 500,000 in punitive damages. Uh, but one has to wonder, did they have any idea that that number would be reduced? Uh, did they care? Uh, did they think no one's going to pay this anyway? Uh, it, it, it just was a strange judgment.
3: You know, the statute itself says a jury shall not be informed of the limitation of the cap. So they wouldn't oh, have known, right, Jason? I mean, they were not told there were any caps. Uh,
1: yeah, not case. unless they researched it themselves. I don't think that they, and, and I'm, from my understanding is this is uh, pretty arcane stuff, you know, that uh, not even every lawyer is aware of this uh, line of cases. So uh, they, they probably just had no idea.
0: Yeah, they were sending
1: a message,
0: right? They were sending a message that these are bad people and we're
1: good people. Well, well, they find James Field six million. A lot of people feel like that was like an intentional number. I mean, they they gave him two six million, so he had total of twelve. But some people feel like that is uh, that was an intentional message. Yeah
3: did 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 the expert witness on the Holocaust get uh, was she permitted to testify about the yeah,
1: but it was kind of underwhelming, kind of boring. And I think Kaplan herself understood that the, it wasn't really moving the needle and, and rushed her out of there pretty quickly.
0: Oh, this was our um, esteemed uh, Emory professor, uh, Dr. Lipstadt. Is that the, the person you're referring to? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. She got uh, $30,000 for, for that testimony. That's fascinating. Well, well, Jason, uh, let's just uh, wrap up here. I know you've got to run. Uh, you've got to work. Uh, I hope they don't get any uh, hooks in your uh, in in the fruits of your labor uh, here. Uh, Ganser Prenadier
1: donated one diamond
0: and asks, uh, you know, what's your your final opinion on the verdict? Uh,
1: well, it, it's a it's a volunteering thing, so it's not I'm okay. not getting paid. Okay. So, what's your final opinion on the verdict? Um, like I said, probably a a B minus. Uh, I, uh, I think overall, um, we could have done a lot worse. You you know, I mean, we, we hung them on the, the two signature counts and, um, uh, I think that the, the count four uh, for me is the only one that I really have a high dollar, um, liability and I feel like it's a strong, grounds for appeal, even in this, you know, corrupt judicial environment. I mean, if there's not even an allegation that I personally did anything wrong, it seems like the jury just made a mistake there. So, uh, you know, all in all, I'm pretty optimistic about things.
0: Well, I'm really glad to hear that because, of course, uh, a lot of people dug down deep into their billions and threw $25 million to deter you. And I'm glad to know that they haven't depressed you. They haven't deterred you and that you're going to still stay in the fight for white rights.
1: Exactly. Yes. That's I've how been. you
0: defeat them. You make them regret this. You make them regret giving you nothing to lose. Uh, and uh, when any one of our people is doxxed, we have to make them regret it. We have to make them uh, realize that whenever you dox somebody, you take a part-time furtive, White advocate, and you turn them into a full-time vengeful, uh, straight-ahead charging white advocate. Uh, when when we do that, we win and they lose.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I'm going to be fighting harder than ever just because I want to prove the point. I think that uh, I'm going to work on starting a, um, a white uh, civil rights advocacy group. It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time, and. I uh, I don't want to always be defined by the fallout of Unite the Right. I want to go on to do other things and just getting stuck in the mire of Unite the Right fallout is what they want for me. And I will not let these people do, define who I am or what I'm able to do with my life.
0: Well, that's very inspiring. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, if you want to help Jason Kessler, go to givesendgo.com forward slash UTR or jasonkessler.us forward slash donate and help him out because he's not out of the fight. He's got a suit against the Charlottesville city government. Uh, he's going after the real conspirators. Nobody else can do this because the statutes of limitations have, have, have uh are now in force, but he got this going in time and he wants to pursue that to the end. It would be nice if the truth about Charlottesville gets dragged out into the light for the world to see before it is completely hardened into a giant stinking mountain of lies, like the lies that are told about Martin Luther King and and uh, the March on Selma and all of this mythology. Uh, about the civil rights uh, movement. Uh, we're never going to get, move that mountain of garbage, but we can, uh, with people like Jason change the Charlottesville narrative and I hope you'll help him out.
1: So thank you, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Good speaking with you guys.
3: Yeah. Take care Jason. Good
0: luck. All righty. Well, that I think is very, very interesting. Um, I would like to to, to um, I, I we, we hit all the the major things uh, about the the reduction, the possibility of reducing these punitive damages. Uh, they could be reduced based on uh, the Virginia sta- uh, case law to a total of three hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's a statute actually it's not case a statute I'm sorry uh, they could be uh reduced based on a Supreme Court case to not, not something one
3: case, uh, multiple cases I mean it's, yeah. it's there's a whole lot of cases but yeah yeah sorry
0: yeah so uh, it could be reduced to three hundred fifty thousand dollars spread around all of the defendants it could in could be in some cases reduced to three or four dollars
3: <laughs> uh, I don't think well, that's well, happened but yeah I yeah but, well, you know, Seth Wispoli and and signs. I mean, Virginia law is very clear. You have to have at least one dollar of actual damages, so they're getting nothing. I mean, yeah. you can't get punitive damages if you have no actual damages. That that is. Oh,
0: scary. that's interesting. I didn't know that, and apparently the the jury didn't know that either.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's just no. I I mean that is just as clear as any any ruling can be. I mean, it's been held multiple times in Virginia and in other jurisdictions. So. Uh, they're not. They should not get a dollar out of um, count three. Um,
0: that's that's absolutely fascinating. And,
3: and so just folks, go ahead. Not not to get too legalistic with you, but I'm not 100 percent sure that one dollar is is real compensatory damages. It's usually called nominal damages. And mm-hmm. uh, th- there seems to be a belief that that's enough. I mean, you have to have you have to have compensatory damages before you can get punitive damages but i'm not sure nominal damages would, comp- would would constitute compensatory damages in that context so that's an oh that's problem. that's
0: even that's also very interesting i didn't know there was a third category of nominal damages yeah and so it, it it's your understanding of the law that if somebody uh, awards nominal damages that that is not a basis for awarding punitive damages
3: I, I just don't know the case law on that, Greg. It's something that needs to be researched. It it should not it should not be assumed automatically that one dollar is is really um, gets them within the realm of, of of being entitled to punitive damages.
0: Well, I I think that's very important. I and I'm sure. Well, well I'm not sure, but I hope that whoever. Uh, takes these cases to the next level will pursue that particular angle as well because that definitely needs to be pursued
3: and, and, so, and well it's on my let, I'm sorry Sam I, I'm sorry no me.
0: keep going keep going yeah, I,
3: I, just well it's I'm thinking about it I, among other problems are punitive damages are supposed to be individual right I mean they're based on the wrongdoing of that defendant but just just to hand out five hundred thousand dollar punitive damages awards to everyone suggests should suggest to an impartial appellate court, they they weren't tailoring this to the particular wrongdoing. They 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 were just automatically trying to get out of there before Thanksgiving, or, or whatever their motives were. Yeah, they
0: were sending a message. Yeah, um, let's go over to our uh, our our D Live uh, donors here. I just want to thank everybody. Uh, Dan Simmons has donated three lemons. Slog fourteen lemons. Uh, Ganser printed year 10 ice cream slog, one ice cream slog, four lemons, gluten, Biden, one diamond. With a huge budget, could an appeal overturn it all? Do you think this could be overturned on appeal if the defendants have uh, the right legal representation and enough money?
3: Um, Sam, I'm going to let you talk, but since it's on the top of my head, I, I, I want to distinguish between a couple of things. By the way, that's my my computer keeps beeping and I've been trying to to silence it, and I apologize, I haven't succeeded. But th- there's a distinction between post, post-trial motions and an appeal. The, the, there are numerous post-trial motions that would be presented to Judge Judge Moon before this would even get to an appeal. Um, there would be a, probably a motion for a new trial, a, a motion for a reminitator, and a, a renewal of the motion for judgment. So uh, when when you ask a question about, can this get overturned on appeal, the first question is, is, is Judge Moon going to do anything? And I, the, the remittator would go to him in the first instance, and I don't know how he can get around, you know, reducing this to 350,000 and then and then below that. So it's a little hard to know what might happen um, when it goes to the Fourth Circuit until we know what Judge Moon would do. Um, but I I think Sam and I are, are comfortable that, I'm not comfortable, but we, we, we've seen many abuses of it of accepting evidence by judge moon. And, and, and as you said, Greg, at the beginning, I don't think this case should have proceeded beside beyond the motion to dismiss. It it is such an affront to the first amendment that it should have been thrown out at the beginning. And uh, before I ramble on too much, I I would say that this is a real procedural mess because it's not, you can only get to an appellate court if there's been a final judgment as to all claims. And there hasn't been a final judgment as to the first two claims. So I, I'm not sure what it's going to leave Judge, Judge Moon's courthouse. But th- there is something, there, there is a means to get what they call interlocutory appeals or partial appeals. Um, so what what we may have in the future is, is this thing proceeding on, you know, partly in Judge Moon's court. And, um, you know, while they're refiling this and, and partly going up to the Fourth Circuit. So it's going to get a little crazy. and And, and that makes it even harder to predict. But uh, um, on the merits, I, I think there's ample ground for, for turning it around. But if that's the assumption that you're going to have fair and impartial uh, rulings by the appellate court. And uh, I have, in my own case, against the SBLC, I don't feel I got that. And I've experienced a couple other cases when I, I didn't think that, that the, those judges were, were, were calling balls and strikes fairly. So that, that, is, that is the big if. Mm-hmm.
0: Sam, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, as you know, I I don't believe in the system. I believe that for our people to live, the system must go. Uh, and I don't expect justice from the courts. I'm not surprised by the result. Uh, I would have been astonished if, if we had won. And if we had won, it would be a fluke, like the uh, Rittenhouse case. Um, it's impossible to go, go to the courts in America and get justice. And I think that's truer at the trial level than the appellate level, but it's true also at the appellate level. Uh, and I think that the, uh, the judges on the appellate level will do what judges in general do. And that is, they will find any possible way, any convoluted uh, way, manner of argument or thinking uh, in order to sustain this verdict. Uh, and the, the, the system got what it wanted out of this case. Uh, they're not interested in whether they can collect a judgment, or, and they, I, I imagine the net worth of these people, except Spencer, is probably I don't know, five hundred thousand um, dollars. But the the they the wanted the them was uh, that they can now cap off their false narrative of what happened at Charlottesville by saying that, and four years later, justice was done when an impartial American jury. In, uh, in a trial presided over by an impartial American judge, uh, determined as a matter of fact that these white racists were conspiring to commit violence. And that's what they wanted, and that's what they've gotten. You know, reductions in the amount of damages. Certainly, we sympathize with all of these people. There's some of them I dislike. There's some of them I know that you dislike. But when it comes to a fight between them and people like Kaplan, uh, we can't be choosy. And we have to hope that they also get out. Uh, but oh, too, it's just absolutely,
0: different. absolutely. I wrote a piece uh, last month called uh, "Racial Solidarity and Moral Hazard," uh, where I I talk about uh, how uh, you know you you can't have automatic knee jerk solidarity with members of your own race if they're doing bad things, uh, and we're called upon uh, many times to have that kind of solidarity with people in our movement. Who behave badly. And I've never bought that. I think it's a moral hazard. I think that if you uh, go to bat for people who are doing stupid things, uh, you invite more stupid things. Uh, however, in this case, uh, these people were not doing anything. They're, they're not being tried. They were not being tried for doing anything wrong. They were being tried for exercising their constitutional rights and standing up for white people. And that goes for all of these defendants, even the ones that I dislike heartily. Uh, In America, it's not against the law to be a jerk. Uh, Unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people in, in this particular case were put on trial for being jerks. And the, the jury basically decided, yeah, they're jerks. They need to be punished with punitive damages.
2: Well, remember, Greg, that uh, if they were to put Thomas Jefferson on trial as a defendant or uh, many other figures in American history, uh, President Monroe, I think, or Madison was a member of the African Colonization Society uh, that wanted blacks repatriated to Africa, uh, that, that they also were jerks. And what they said and wrote could be used to strangle and destroy them uh, the way Kaplan and company uh, want to use it to strangle us. And it shows the under the fundamental reality and truth, what we're saying, that you can't export uh, reason and logic and self-restraint and the forms of the law uh, to people who are genetically coded not to be able to handle those. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, I, I completely agree with that. Uh Your average white person, I wouldn't say average, but your excellent, your middling to excellent white person uh, will look at both sides of things and try and uh, find the truth. Uh, There are other groups on this planet who have no conception of that whatsoever. Uh, And to the extent they understand it, they just think that this is a weakness that they can exploit in us and uh, we we simply can't we can't live with people like that. No, uh, we We can't no. allow them into our system. We can't allow them into our courts, into our universities, and into our government. And sadly, we have
2: and and they regard us that way. People like Kaplan want our total destruction. Uh, they they they've been allowed into our society. They were given full rights the minute they stepped off the boat from from whatever ghetto they came from, from Poland, um, but they have no gratitude. Instead, like Dershowitz, they want to pick whatever little thing they can come up with to justify their hatred of American society. Nothing will ever cleanse uh, uh, Roberta Kaplan uh, from this. She is hardwired to be this way and and no one can ever live in a society with with a Roberta Kaplan.
3: I I will say that I'm a bit of a holdout to think that there are judges who, when they put on that robe, really think they should decide the case fairly on principle. I've, I've become more and more um, concerned that that doesn't happen, but there, there are isolated instances of it. I, 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 I have some hope that this case may be fairly uh, reviewed on appeal.
2: Well, I'm, I'm a ditto, head. I have dealt with judges who were were fair. I even dealt one time with a, a Black judge who was, who was extremely fair uh, when, when uh, the person involved in the SPLC smear in Atlanta mailed her uh, the smear on me anonymously. And, and she was very honest and forthright about that. But we're talking generalities. There are fair judges, but but they're 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 not they're not a majority, in my opinion. And um, you know the 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 system is just irretrievably broken. It, it's incredibly corrupt. People have no idea how the American average Americans have no idea how bad the system is. It's impossible uh, to go go to American court with any realistic expectation expectation of justice. You can't do it.
0: So how did Bill Regnery get released from one of these post-Charlottesville lawfare suits? Sam, do you want to talk a bit about that? Because it is important.
2: It is very important. And that was something I was wanting to ask Jason about. When I asked the question, what can we do uh, to strengthen our position? Uh, I, I said to him that this does not mean any criticism of him. These, these defendants have, been, have gotten a lot of, of unjust criticism from fifth-inning quarterbacks. Uh, who say, oh, they should have known nothing like this had ever happened before. A plot by by the first African American police chief in the town uh, to to direct the police not to enforce the laws. That that's something extraordinary. No one could have anticipated that. But there are things we can learn about, you know, what we can do. One of the most obvious, is what he said that you know, you you moderate your language. You take care not to say or write anything that you're not prepared to hear read in a grand jury room or to a, to a jury that's hostile to you. But the specific thing about Regner, I do not know uh, what the grounds were uh, that his lawyers articulated him being dismissed. Glenn probably knows better than I. I, I think he's uh, uh, very well informed in this area of getting people dismissed. But I can't help as a cynic to believe that one of the reasons that he was released and the others were not in that suit is that he had an umbrella insurance policy. And his insurance carrier was required to defend the case. And the, the, the law firm that had to defend that insurance claim was one of the most prominent insurance defense firms in Virginia. And that would mean two things. Number one, it would mean that when the judge fixed the case and screwed the people over with his biased uh, rulings, assuming that he's that the one having that is that kind of judge, it would mean that he that he would have to, to antagonize uh, a big player law firm. Uh, and believe me, it is a big difference in court uh, what kind of law firm you come from. Uh, they, the courts are extremely big firm sensitive and 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 party sensitive. Uh, they, they are very careful about that. So I think he wanted that firm out of I suspect he may very well have wanted that firm out of his courtroom. Uh, and the other thing is, the lawyer was probably highly competent. You know, the big firm lawyers are, are not dum not dums, uh, and, and he would have, Gregory would have would have complicated the case by having a highly comp- competent, AV-rated lawyer like uh, Mr. Glenn Allen uh, sitting in the courtroom with every proceeding, making the objections correctly and cross-examining correctly, and, and for obvious reasons, didn't want him out of there. And the lesson we derive from that is, if you can do it, if you can afford it, and they're not very expensive, get an umbrella insurance policy, uh, and then this will present a, a problem to people like Kaplan uh, and judges that want to play pedicade with it.
3: With respect to Regnery, I, I could tell you my understanding is the, there were not big pockets in that plaintiff. It was a separate lawsuit. They didn't have $25 million, and it, it clearly showed signs of being a copycat kind of complaint, and I'm not sure it was even properly served. Um, and I think there was some communication that convinced that lar- that plaintiff to go away against Regnery and others. Um, it didn't take much because they just didn't have the resources. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's to agree my understanding. Um, there, there was another defendant who was dismissed, and that was Mike Pianovich And I one of the things that might have helped him was that the plaintiffs um, quoted from a speech. But uh, they, one thing Moon did do was he took judicial notice of the speech since it was they quoted excerpts from it, and he he disclaimed any violence. But I, I think Jason Kessler did as well. But it certainly helped Pianovich and it also helped that he was. He wore a suit and tie, and he, he spoke respectfully to the judge in, in, the, in, in the motion uh, to dismiss, which he argued for himself. Um, so, I, I mean, there there is one one who has got who was released in this in this case uh, on the pleadings, um, but there should have been twenty five who were dismissed on the pleadings. But yeah, Sam, Absolutely. I. I I, uh, I commend you for I didn't realize that you know I hadn't thought about the umbrella insurance policy and I mean I, Sam's a realist I mean it does matter where these lawyers are from you know um, and if, if you're gonna have to I mean a lot of the judges come from the big law firms and they, they they know their old law firm and I'm I'm not saying it's it's egregious bias but it's some kind of a uh, an implicit sense that they'll listen respectfully and, and and that
2: they're part of a club it, it, it's it's money will be accepted i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not complaining about it. i've been a sole practitioner and i have fought with these people and you know i've encountered a bit of this i'm not i'm not surprised at it in any system uh, the powerful are going to be treated better than the, the people who don't have power mrs mrs brezhnev did not shop in the same shop in the so-called egalitarian society of the Soviet Union uh, as Ivan uh, Ivanovna from the, the the collective farm in Ukraine. It's just the way the world works. You know, there's always going to be deference to the powerful. And, and you, know, you just accept it. It's the way the world works.
0: Yeah. Uh, we have a few questions here that are not on the topic uh, at hand, but I would like to get your Uh, your thoughts on these. So uh, folks, if you would like to help out and if you'd like to ask a question uh, and leave a comment uh, or or a donation, go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents, hit the green button and leave a paid chat. We would very much appreciate it. It will help us get to our goal. Let me run through a few people who have given uh, entropy donations. Uh, Going back a few days, I want to thank Ricky, uh, for 300 US dollars. This is wonderful. Uh, here, here's his message. This is Ricky, an ardent veteran reader, fan, and occasional essay contributor, kudos to countercurrents, the Beacon and the rampart of this tumultu- of this tumultuous age and the towering rock of the surging torrent. in the surging torrent, hold your ground and continue to inspire and enlighten more people. We are right uh, uh, we are the right and noble side and we will prevail in the end, salute and support you forever. Well, thank you. that's very generous. Mr. James has written in with 100 U.S. dollars. Again, that's extremely generous. That's, again, from a couple days ago. Uh, Hortator writes in with three euros and says thanks. And he also writes in with 100 euros. That's real money. Thank you very much, uh, Hortator. And he has a question. Uh, And I'd like you gentlemen to uh, give your thoughts on it as well, and I'll give mine. Uh, Do you think countercurrents and other dissident publications have a role in helping healing old enmities between various European nations, including diaspora, ethnic European nations too? Does countercurrents have any plans in this regard for 2022? So is, is it our role or one of our roles to Heal enmities between various European uh, nations and ethnic groups, uh, both in Europe and in the diaspora.
2: Uh, I will, for once, break ahead of my superior, Glenn Allen, who outranks me in the rankings of lawyers since he ha- is an AV-rated lawyer and from a big firm. But absolutely, I, I dislike the term nationalist, it, along with right-wing conservative, is something that I would like to see utterly discarded. You know. I, I am a Southerner. Uh, I am an Anglo-Saxon. Uh, I'm quite happy being a Southern and Anglo-Saxon, and uh, that's that's one of my allegiances. But I'm part of an overall group of of people, uh, of the people who of our race who come out of cultures where their their ancestors were Nicene Creed Christians as of 1492. Whatever they believe now, they're part of a culture of paganism and Christianity that have come down to us. Uh, they all look at a, a picture of the, uh, the uh, Parthenon, the Acropolis, where they're looking at it in Vladivostok, Russia, or Dublin, Ireland. They all look at it and they have the same feel toward it. Uh, these are my, these is, this is my primary allegiance, not not the South, and uh, not Anglo-Saxons. And this nationalism stuff has, has caused the two great Peloponnesian wars of the last century, that, that may have erected a tombstone over our civilization uh, and our race. Um, I have been chided, by among other people, by uh, one Gregory R. Johnson uh, for the fact that, that I sometimes have said uncharitable things about Irishmen coming, coming from a family background of people who disliked the Irish very much. Uh, but I, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, and, you know, I, we have to accept the fact that the Irish are part of our family. Uh, we have, may have had discordant relations with them. Uh, But we we have to try to get along with them now and accept them. They are members of our family. The French have to do that with the Germans, the Germans with the French, Poles uh, with Russians, Ukrainians with Russians. Our enemies thrive on exacerbating these tensions among family members. So absolutely, that is what we must do. Uh, And one part of it is we've got to get rid of this stuff of calling ourselves Polish nationalists or Swedish nationalists or English nationalists. Yeah, yeah, we are loyal to our countries. And and, and yeah, I, I'm very comfortable with being what I am. Uh, but I, I have no quarrel uh, today. Uh, I, I don't have to carry on the same quarrel that my ancestors carried on for centuries with the Irish. We can't afford to do that. We're like the Greeks inside the walls of Constantinople. This is not the time to be arguing uh, over, over whether the Pope is superior to the Patriarch. Yeah, this is a time when all Christian white people, and I use the term Christian lower C, because uh, I know that most people listening to this are not really Christians. We, we've all got to be a team. And this nationalism divides us the same way the sick individualism d- divides us on a, on a day-to-day basis. That's my spiel.
3: Um, I, I would just comment, but if you don't mind me I'm quoting Dr. Samuel Johnson about the Irish. I'm half Irish, by the way. But he was, he was once asked. I don't know if you know Dr. Samuel Johnson, but he wrote. He was a great lexicographer who wrote the first dictionary. But Boswell asked him, uh, "Dr. Johnson, what do you think of the Irish?" And he said, "Sir, the Irish are an honest people. They never speak well of each other."
1: <laughs> uh, so,
2: somebody said of Scottish Presbyterians, my ancestors, that they they pray to God and all their neighbors.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, one hopes that there will be friendly distinctions between our ethnic backgrounds that don't result in cutting each other's throats. I, I went. I, I have a Slavic wife who came from the Balkans, and God knows how much bloodshed there has been in the Balkans. And I, when I think of these people, how many years have they warred on each other? And as Sam said, World War. World War One. I mean, could that not have been prevented? I there's very little sucker we can draw from these horrible things that are being done to white people, except that they've gotten so extreme that I think people are. One hopes that people are beginning to see white white folks are beginning to see that they are they have been identified as an enemy, and that they are being unfairly treated insofar as they are white people, and that this their, their their disputes with other ethnicities should be given second place or third place to, to this greater, greater enmity that's being directed against them. So uh, that's my briefer spiel. Yeah, well,
0: well, I, I agree with you guys. I think you're, well, you're, you're saying it very well. I, I have a few little, little uh, quibbles. Uh, I I think that we have to do justice to all of our, obligations. You know, we, we have obligations to ourselves, we have obligations to our families, to our communities, to our nation, uh, and to our larger race. And I would even say that we have obligations to the world as a whole. Uh, and that would even include other races on the planet. Uh, and we, we have to recognize <clears throat> the greater good uh, when there's a conflict between smaller goods and greater goods, uh, we have to uh, try and cleave to the greater good. So I, I think that, you know, Europeans are different peoples. Uh, we, have, we have different languages, different cultures, different histories. And we have quarrels, historical quarrels with one another. Uh, and those are all real. And you can't really be loyal to your ancestors and your, your, your own tribe uh, and just ignore all those things or say they don't matter, but there is a larger context in which they matter less. And that's when Europeans have to face together uh, challenges to our very existence. Uh, then, then we have to put aside these uh, small differences and small quarrels and, and work together for the greater good. Uh, so I, I, agree with that. I, aside from saying that again and again, <laughs> uh, I don't know what much, much more that I can do. I, I have scolded people over the years, like Sam <laughs> uh, for, um, uh, for these, uh, how to put it um, for, for, you know the ethnic jokes and things like that uh, for rehearsing old ethnic conflicts that uh, divide us uh, and and don't really matter that much anymore. Um, you know, I, I can I can go back and say that in if I lived in the middle of the nineteenth uh, century in America, uh, I would have said that the know Nothings and these people w- were right to try and hold on to their identity, uh, but we don't live in that America anymore. Uh, And we Americans are a different people than they were in 1848 uh, or 1830. Uh, And we have to uh, just recognize that fact that we're a different people. Religion matters less to us. Uh, I
2: think I can speak for myself and I suspect for you and Glenn, I, I feel more at home, when I, when I was in Europe traveling in Italy, I felt more at home with the people I, I saw and dealt with in Milan, and even the ones I dealt with in Syracuse and Palermo, Sicily, than I do with my fellow American Black Protestants in South Atlanta. Uh, and I, I think that we would feel more at home with, with the Italians and the Serbs and the Russians and the French and so forth. Than we would uh, if we were in a barrio uh, of Hispanics in, in uh, Santa Fe, you know. So you know, it just instinctively, I I I felt that these were my people. They weren't. They weren't exactly what I am. Their religion wasn't exactly my religion, uh, but I could be comfortable with them. They, they were. They were my fellows and colleagues.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree with that. Uh, I I do think, however, that we have to give credit where credit is due to nationalism, Uh, because in every European country, uh, the the people who are resisting globalization, resisting uh, immigration, resisting multiculturalism, race mixing, and all of these things that are destroying white people, uh, those will be the nationalists. Those are are the people who have the strong sense of identity that want to maintain national sovereignty against global institutions and things like the EU that are trying to force them to uh, open their borders and uh, basically erase their identities. And so uh, the way I look at white nationalism is that white nationalism is just the belief that white people in every white nation... Uh, or that, that every white people sh- has a right to self determination if they if they if they feel they need to exercise that for their their own survival, and we build a a strong Europe uh, one white nation at a time, uh, and and that the organic roots of of our movement the, sort of the broader white nationalist movement are going to be founded on the the more specific ethno-nationalist movements uh, that, that exist
2: in Europe. So well, here, here, is a, here is a rare point of disagreement. Uh, I think people are calling themselves nationalists because it's a convenient handle. It's like an old person like me getting out of the bathtub. It's something you can grab onto and lift yourself up with. Uh, I suspect most of them aren't really nationalists in the sense that they're involved in trying to control immigration into Belgium because they're Flemish. Uh, and I think that I've seen personally at gatherings in Europe uh, that that there is no friction between these people who call themselves nationalists. Uh, and I think nationalism is just very destructive to us. It was nationalism that caused the Irish soldiers in the American army in Mexico to mutiny and go over to the uh, uh, to the mexicans. Uh, they they felt they had more in common with the Mexicans, and it was nationalism that caused Britain to oppress the England to oppress the Irish. It was nationalism that motivated the French and the, uh, others to fight Germany. Uh, and I, I just think it's a, I, I agree with one thing you said at the beginning, and that is we have to look at the overall benefit. Uh, there is this term of, of real refer real politics. Uh, and uh, the British pursued that, for instance, Uh, after World War I, in the case of the Armenians and the Pontine Greeks, whom they basically, the British and French basically abandoned them uh, to the Muslim uh, genocidalists, the Turks. Uh, And this was justified among many English leaders by, well, we're being realistic. We have no real connection with these Christian Indo-European Greeks and Armenians. Uh, And Turkey has the the straits, and this is good for our empire and for our trade. What we see with this kind of narrow-minded, parochial. we're in it for England thinking has led. Now Now there are mosques rising all over London. No. Uh, racial idealism, I like to call myself a racial idealist. And that is really what I am, a racial idealist, uh, and something of a, a left of center, racial communitarian. I, I'm not a libertarian, pro private property person either. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying I'm against private property, but you, you know what I mean in terms of big business. But no, the broader interest of the people of Great Britain lay in in helping the Pontian Greeks in Western Asia Minor retake that turf for for Western civilization uh, and in helping the Armenians break free uh, in Eastern Anatolia and getting the Turks out of Constantinople. That was the real interest ultimately of the English people. And this kind of parochialism has come back to bite them. Oh, absolutely.
0: I I think like every phenomenon, uh, you can have good and bad forms of it. Uh, I think you can have good nationalism and bad nationalism. I, I think good nationalism is the idea that you want to maintain your identity and your self-determination. And you recognize that other peoples have equal rights, uh, to do the same, and you and you were willing to respect that.
2: Uh, bad nationalism, as, is- as, as Metternich said, must must every language have its own country? Yes, <laughs> I, yes, I sure. Yeah. I, I think we can. We ought to live uh, pleasantly with each other, and sometimes we'll we'll be in combination with them. I, I just think the overriding culture and race are so much more important than than these parochial interests, and we see them. Inflaming it with the Baltic states against Russia and Ukraine against Russia and this kind of thing. So anyway, I think we're really saying the same thing in in slightly different ways. We're really on the same page.
0: Uh, Glenn, do you have any further thoughts on this?
3: Well, I only an anecdote. I, I was in London recently and I saw Lord Nelson. You know, he's up on a statue 100 feet. And it wasn't long after that that I think there was some kind of event in which a statue of Winston Churchill was defaced and they had to put something around it to protect it um, and I was thinking you know if if Lord Nelson wasn't up there 100 feet he would have been defaced too because so many of these people in London either don't know about him or don't care about him or hate him and uh, I think there's a consequence. Of, of losing our, our sense of whiteness that we, we lose touch with our history and there's all kinds of bad bad things that flow from that. But, but I was also thinking that the dynamic is that, you know, Lord Nelson fought the French and, and Winston Churchill fought the Germans and that's what made him heroes and that's, that's kind of the uh, the difficulty, you know, that you, you want to respect your ancestors but your ancestors became heroes by fighting other Europeans. Um yeah yeah so i i guess it's a matter of education and and i commend you and, and sam but all you're doing greg is trying to for for all you're doing is trying to create a, a position where you can look at lord nelson and and lord and, and and maybe churchill i don't know and and say you know there's there's something to admire about them but it wasn't that they fought other europeans it, it's just that they had certain qualities and and that's
2: well that's yeah right? Churchill has to be the arch parochialist. When the, when, the, when the non-whites and communists went after Churchill's statue, uh, I, I thought of a wonderful one of T.S. Eliot's poems, the last temptation to do the right thing for the wrong reason. It should be the people of England and Scotland taking his statue down. It, it should go the way of Lenin statues in, in the former Soviet Union.
0: <laughs> yeah. I. I have written a number of pieces at Countercurrents over the years uh, about, you know, whiteness. And I, I think that we have to combat this whiter-than-thou attitude uh, that we, we get a lot. And you usually get it a lot in, in the colonies. Uh, I think. Uh, you know, in the colonies when you are opening your borders uh, and you're constructing a new people, uh, and that's what they do in the colonies. they construct a new people. Uh, Americans are a different people than the English and the Scottish and the the uh, other peoples who came that were were a distinct people, and we were a constructed people. And when uh, you debate about how to construct this new people, uh, you you ask, well, who are the people who are assimilable? Who are the people who can become part of our of our polity? And in the first thing that the uh, American government uh, Congress passed in 1790, the Naturalization Act, it, it, it was white people. Uh, it was it was. A white nationalist document. Uh, you know, they, 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 those are the people that could become part of the body politic or, or just white people. They didn't say uh, you know, uh, people who are, uh, say, north of the Alps or west of, uh, of, of certain rivers and things like that. They, they just spoke of, of European uh, people. Um, and I, I, don't like a lot of this sort of whiter than thou attitudes that you get, uh, within the movement. Uh, and I don't like the, the ethnic jokes and things like that. Uh, again, I, I, I've scolded people over this in the past, uh, but I can't constantly scold people, <laughs> uh, because, well, you just become an old, uh, an old nag, uh, when you do that, but, um. These are these are destructive uh, attitudes, uh, especially in the United States, uh, because uh, whatever Americans uh, are, uh, we are a distinct ethnic p- group. Uh, we're a new people, and uh, I, I think that uh, we we have to uh, sort of suppress the. Uh, ethnic conflicts that uh, have existed in America in the past. Uh, those conflicts were uh, part and parcel of the process of assimilating people. Uh, but now uh, in America, especially people, uh, you know, who are 20 and 30 or so, uh, you know, we, we we generally can't really identify ourselves as anything else than Americans. For instance, uh, there's a tendency for Americans with an Irish surname to say, oh, "I'm Irish American." Well, they might be one quarter, one eighth Irish. They have an Irish surname, and so okay, I'm Irish. Uh, you will find somebody with an Italian surname who's three quarters uh, uh, French, <laughs> or or three quarters English, but they've got an Italian surname, so they'll say they're they're uh, Italian American. But the truth of the matter is, is that an Italian American, an Irish American and a Polish American, so-called because of their surnames, have the same language. They probably like the same food. Uh, they probably uh, you know enjoy the same sports and they have more in common with one another than they do with a Polish guy in Poland. Uh, and, and a Polish American, or an, uh, an Irish guy in Turin and an Irish, or, 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 or I'm sorry, an Italian guy in Turin and an Italian American and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and so, in, in, especially in the context of the colonies, uh, putting too much emphasis on these old world ethnic identities, I, I think is just sort of a harmful
2: form of LARPing. I call it surname LARPing. It, it is horrible, right. Greg, and it, and it it afflicts us especially because the kind of people who are drawn to our movement are people that tend to look at their past and accentuate uh, their their own ethnicity. When, when we need team playing, I, I see this, it's astonishing to me. I, I go sometimes to the Scottish games here in Atlanta and people pour huge amounts of money into this sort of phony Scottish identity. These are people whose ancestors came here the time mine did, you know, 250 years ago uh, or more. Uh, and they're, they've they spent $1,000 on a kilt. Uh, they, I mean, they're, they're, they're spending thousands every year on, on this ersatz Scottish identity. And part of that is they gather together at parties and rant and rave about the English. <laughs> I've told people like this, they have, they've had people in the Scots Nationalist Party over to Atlanta to rant and rave about the English. And I, I told people, I don't want a world in which the people of Milton and Shakespeare are going to be alien to me. Yeah, you know, I I don't want that. And I'm not and, interested in what and, Yeah, and they might
0: be as English as they are Scottish if yeah, you actually look yeah. at their uh, genealogy. And so it's a form of false consciousness. Uh, And it's a destructive form of false consciousness.
3: But but don't you think it it suggests a strong need for identity? I mean, these people... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and that's not a bad
0: thing. Uh, It's it's certainly not a bad thing. But but what's happened is is, uh, being a white American has become so stigmatized by the anti-white establishment that a lot of people will embrace partial identities, parochial identities, because they, or or they'll b- embrace stupid made-up identities like being uh, part of a fan community for s- sci-fi right. franchises or, or
2: um, you know, being a sports fan or something well, like or that. More, or more importantly, uh, that I'm a woman, like that goofy trial in the O.J. Simpson case that the silly Jewish prosecutress uh, believed that black women would feel they had more in common with Nico because they were women than they would with somebody who looked like their husband or their son or their father. You know, right. or, or I'm straight, or I'm gay, or I'm a, I'm a Yankee, or I'm a Southerner. I, all of these, all of these false identities are easily available. And generally speaking, no, no one loses a job for being a feminist. You know, no, no one loses a job for signing up for these phony identities. Uh, but I remember somebody in our circle in Atlanta who you remember, Greg, who gave an interesting talk. He's an open homosexual, uh, a doctor, uh, and, and he said, "I, I have all, everything except sexual orientation in common uh, with white with my white heterosexual brother, and he said, I have nothing in common with, with a black homosexual." And that's sensible, you know. It, it that's the way we ought to be. But instead, they have these phony identities of of. of, of, of say of sex and gender or jenniferingham that regions southerners and and all this uh, these things are very destructive to us
3: i, I you know I, I would just say that when you give some thought to how do people want to be identified i mean why do they seek an identity it's usually tied up with a a wish to find a hero of some kind or someone that they can really admire and i and that's one respect in which i you know, I've come away with a great admiration for Kessler in this conversation. I, I didn't know him well, but he seems like, uh, you know, he's going to come through this and people are going to look look at him and see that he he stood his ground. And uh, I, I really think that's the kind of thing that identities are built on. Um, you know, the, the Alamo or the uh, 300 Greeks or something that, that people really stood their ground and and, and later people said, I want to be a Texan or I want to be a, a
0: Greek. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like that. I, I like that a lot.
2: Um, I want to thank a couple more. Oh, go ahead, Sam. Uh, I, I think we need to take another peek, we're about out of time, at the, uh, the incidents in Charlottesville and the conviction uh, in, of the McMichaels in the Aubrey case in Brunswick, Georgia, and the acquittal of Rittenhouse. What I going to say is going to be very much subject to mis, misinterpretation and misquotation. Uh, of course, my sympathy is entirely with all of the defendants at Charlottesville and with McMichaels. But in a larger sense, our defeats in those cases were victories for us. And Rittenhouse's success uh, in, in the trial uh, over the incident in Kenosha was a defeat for us. Uh, and I say that because Charlottesville and Brunswick show white Americans that there is no hope in the system. Uh, tens of millions of people who are now Divided between being racial nationalists or being civic nationalists, were reassured by by Kyle Rittenhouse's acquittal by a white jury in a very exceptional situation. Oh, the system works for us. You can get justice from the courts. That's a wrong conclusion. Uh, the McMichael incident, uh, you know, their 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 conviction just in the face of the facts sends the sends the message of truth to our people. And defeats like this in the long run are victories. We've had systems before that were tyrannical and had corrupt courts. We had one in, in England under Charles I, and it worked well for him for a while, but eventually it brought him down and cost him his head. And we hope this will be the case with the system here as our people come to see what it is and that it has got to go.
0: I think you're absolutely right. And Jared Taylor by the way, and if somebody will link this in the chat, I would appreciate it. Jared Taylor just published a very thorough piece about just how bad the Arbury trials, the armed robbery trials uh, verdict is. What a shocking miscarriage of justice uh it was and and how evil the the system in Georgia is. Uh, on so many levels, how corrupt and evil it is. And that is more the rule, I'm afraid, uh, than what happened to Kyle Rittenhouse, who's a lucky lad, and I'm glad he got off. But yeah, the the more things that come along to disillusion people, the better, because it is an illusion. We want to get rid of illusions. And uh, one of the great things that happened after Donald Trump, was the, the mask of sanity and civility on the left has vanished. It will never come back. Uh, no one's going to be fooled by these people. It has it sowed immense polarization and bitterness. And that's good because we can't live with these people. And uh, when, when they, they play patty cake and they act civil, it allows us to fool ourselves about it. And we can't live with the current system in America. Uh, because it's ultimately genocidal against white people. Exactly. And, yeah. When some when good things happen, like the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, it lets people fool themselves into thinking that we can get along with the system rather than uh, needing to replace it.
2: It's a hard thing to say, but you know, when you when you become a revolutionary and you seek to change society, history shows a lot of people get burned at the stake, and we should be grateful. I like to tell people that the system court. Uh, in Charlottesville, has mooned America, mm. so to speak. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. court, the the system courts have shown their collective posterior to the American people uh, against whom those courts work and whose destruction those courts want. Yeah,
0: and I I love the fact that Jason Kessler is just going to keep agitating on this. Uh, I appreciate how he has this ethos of just of doing the work. Uh, he does the legal work. He does the research. He goes out there and he just doesn't stop. Uh, it's it's very impressive because, uh, you know, uh, there was a fellow, a, a frequent commentator at Countercurrents and a, and a very good guy who said, Greg, you know, how do we motivate people to give their lives for the movement? Uh, you've got to promise them heaven or something. And my, my response was, you know, we actually don't need people right now giving their lives to the movement. What we really need are people who actually work for it, that's who right. actually put in the time, uh, to, to do what's necessary, who, who do boring things, who file paperwork and stuff like that. And I don't have to promise those people heaven. I just have to promise them a competitive wage. Uh, but we don't have the money to do that yet. Uh, but that's coming too. Uh, but, uh, Yeah, he's one of these people who just tirelessly works. And if we have racial idealists who combine idealism with stick-to-itiveness and practicality, those are people who can, you know, they can literally change the course of history. And that's what we want. Uh, It's always risky uh, to sound grandiose, but we have the ambition of changing the course of history. History is going in the wrong direction and we want to turn it around. That's a pretty grandiose uh, ambition. Uh, and we have to be realistic about our chances, but we really want to turn the world around. And to do that, we need to be intelligent and idealistic, but we can't just be dreamers. We have
1: to work.
3: What do you make up? I, I saw an announcement from Antifa that in light of the, the acquittal of Kyle, um, Kyle Rittenhouse—that they were going to get more guns, and they were going to—they uh, were going to use that as a reason to
1: uh,
3: even more guns than they already have. But I—I don't know if that's an empty threat, or if we're going to see more and more gun violence.
0: Oh, absolutely, we're going to see more violence. These people are Bolsheviks. These people are capable of mass murder on continental scales. Uh, and we can't live with these people. And the sooner that we wake up and learn that, uh, the better. And then we have to remember it. That's the trouble with white people. Um, you, can, you, can, you can get them alarmed uh, at things for a brief period of time, and then they want to uh, go back to sleep. This is why it's always so problematic to have a Republican in the White House. Because it puts ninety uh, percent of our people to sleep, they think that uh, things are going to be fine now.
2: Uh, so. If they're not told something over and over and over again, they forget it. Everyone has forgotten the 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 O.J. Simpson trial and what that meant in terms of all the silly stuff that white women are told that they are sisters. Stacey Abrams right, was just laughing herself sick, when she goes, "Huh? then no more." I, than-
0: I have to tell you that one of the loneliest most discomforting days in my life was teaching at a black college in darkest Atlanta when the OJ Simpson verdict was announced. That was a very educational experience. And they educated me. I wasn't educating them at that point. They educated me enormously. Um, uh, Reed Johnson has uh, sent us 10 US dollars. And he has a question for Jason. I'll pass it along. The question is, what is the way out of this golden age of lawfare as political suppression? What should we do differently in the short term to avoid draining lawsuits, and what needs to happen long term to get out of this bear trap? Well, I, I think we've ha- we've addressed some of that, uh, and that's a good question. I will pass it along. Uh, Blunderbuss has sent in twenty U.S. dollars. It's very generous. Thank you very much. Were the plaintiffs crying out in pain regarding the the? Uh, uh, Charlottesville decision. Yeah, they were crying out in pain as they uh, attacked. Uh, Jen, tears out. of
3: joy, right? I thought I read somewhere. Oh,
0: oh, <clears throat> I think they were crying crocodile tears when they were pretending to be uh, victims. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, uh, but Jen uh, writes in with thirty-five U.S. dollars. Thank you. Uh, thanks, CC. Happy holidays. Uh, happy. Happy Thanksgiving, happy Christmas, and everything else to you, uh, Jen. I really appreciate it. Uh, Let's see if we have some more questions, comments, or donations over at DLive. Um, uh, My trail of disgrace has donated three lemons. Thank you very much. Uh, Well, folks, we have been going on for two hours now, and I think we should wrap up. Uh, So I want to thank... Sam and uh, Glenn, for coming on. It's it's always great to to talk to you, gentlemen. And I'm I, I'd love to have you back on the show, Glenn, because there's never any shortage of of legal outrages to discuss.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, I I know we're all doing what we can to bring some sanity back to this political and, and legal system, and it's a it's a tough assignment. But
0: yeah. Um, Folks, look at Glenn's FreeExpressionFoundation.org. It's linked in the, in the notes here. Uh, and give it your support. He's doing very, very important work. Uh, you know, there are people who complain, we just need really top flight lawyers on our side. Well, Glenn is one of those really top flight lawyers and he's on our side. Uh, so he's a hugely important resource for us. Uh, Sam, thank you again for coming on. It's always a pleasure.
2: Well, I know that Glenn joins me in saying thank you for having
0: us. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to thank the donors out there who have given donations. Thank you. I want to thank our moderators. Uh, You've been extremely helpful. And I want to thank all of our listeners. I also want to plug Nick Gilby. Uh, He will be back here tomorrow starting at 1 p.m. Pacific time, 4 p.m. Eastern time and 10 o'clock Central European time. That's 9 o'clock in the U.K., he is going to have Tomislav Sunich and they are going to talk about uh, Yugoslavia. Both of them are uh, from the from former Yugoslav republics. Uh, Nick is from Macedonia, and uh, Tomislav is from Croatia. So they're going to be talking about the breakup of Yugoslavia, post Yugoslavia, maybe a little bit of Yugos nostalgia, uh, and they'll also be talking about current events and your questions. So please tune in. Tomorrow for the writer's block, and we will be back one week from today with another episode of Counter Currents Radio. Leave,
2: just before you leave, I, I hope that somebody will point out in discussion among the Yugos, former Yugoslavs like Glenn's White that there was very little ethnic conflict in Slovenia because it was it didn't enjoy diversity. Uh, but the reason for the meltdown and the, ma- the mass murders in Bosnia Herzegovina was they were celebrating diversity and all three discordant religions and nationalities were all experiencing the vibrant culture of living together in divergency. And we see where that ended.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, now that these populations have to some extent separated into their m- more homogeneous homelands, uh, well, things are, things are more peaceful in the Balkans, and I, and I hope that they stay that way. Uh, well into the future. So again, thanks everybody. Please tune in t- uh, tomorrow. Uh, Tomislav Sunic is always an interesting guy. And Nick is one of our uh, great discoveries. <laughs> he's one of our, our young rising stars. He's not even 30 yet. And usually awesome. I have a rule now, don't trust anyone under 30. Fortunately, <laughs> he's going to turn 30 very soon. So, uh, but, but anyway, yeah, he's, uh, he's a rising star.
3: Well, take take care, Greg. Thanks for inviting me, and I'll check off. Okay. Okay. Well. Bye.